Bibles, please. You would open them to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're looking through this chapter this morning. Wes was kind enough to read a good portion of it this morning. So, now this entire chapter, all of it, recounts Stephen speaking before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. We're not going to read it all at once, but we're going to go through it and see some of the important points that are in here and ultimately see how people react to Jesus Christ and what he says, does, and is. So, Father, now I pray that you would... Lord, come through in all of your goodness, your justice, your redemption. Lord, all that you are through the words of this text, Lord, that records what Stephen said before the Sanhedrin that day, Lord, ultimately pointing to Christ and your redemption and your justice and your forgiveness and all that you are. Amen. So now when we start chapter 7, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, as it says, he is standing alone speaking boldly to the crowd of the Sanhedrin, and by the end of chapter 7, he is stoned to death with Paul, the future apostle, looking on in agreement. This Stephen is clearly an evangelistic kind of guy, but he's not the type outside in the courtyard, practicing like street evangelism to those who happen by. Rather, Stephen, he is a Hellenistic Jew, that is a foreign Greek-speaking Jew, and he's likely frequenting one of the many non-Israeli Jew synagogues that are around Jerusalem. So at some point, his evangelism, his gospel ministry to these other Hellenists, got him persecuted, they got him in trouble, and he ends up being taken into the heart of Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. So, some basics about Stephen. He was chosen, along with several other foreign Jews, to help divide up the food for the other Hellenistic Jews. And in the prior chapter 6, it says, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and they did that along with six others. The reason? Part of it was to serve tables, as it says, in the food distribution. So Stephen here was what might be called a table deacon. And in the midst of his serving, it says, Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So much like Paul in prison, he just keeps declaring Christ wherever and whatever he's doing. And so, guess what's going to happen? It was just like Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And that is exactly what happens to Stephen as he preaches Christ. 
Now, it might be helpful to mention also that this Acts chapter 7 of Stephen getting in trouble from his preaching did not happen until probably three or more years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we read many Jews who attended the non-Israeli Jew synagogues did not like what Stephen was saying, particularly about Jewish law and traditions. So then we read, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And the charges they have against him come like this. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now that brings us to Stephen's address here, chapter 7, before the Sanhedrin. Now what we have here is Stephen challenged in four basic ways. The accusations against him from chapter 6 are that Stephen blasphemed against God, against Moses, against the law, and against this holy place, meaning the temple itself. Accusing Stephen here, these men misquote Stephen just like others did Jesus. They say Stephen declared that Jesus will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Recall the false witnesses at Jesus' trial falsely saying Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So they simply asked Stephen, what about all this? Are these charges true? And Stephen launches into a full chapter address in which he is defending not himself, but the truth about God, about the scriptures, about Jesus. And what he does is give us a nice history of the Jews, which turns out to be exceedingly unflattering. Now, this might seem like resorting to simply recounting to the Jews their history is an unnecessary history lesson. But the big picture about the scriptures is they are a history book. And when we recount, as Stephen does, things recorded in this history book to others, which have the purpose of revealing God to us and our relationship to him, the first question is, is this Bible true? Is it accurate? Is it actual history? Did these things take place? For the Sanhedrin, the answer is yes. They believe the history Stephen recounts. There's no question about that. He simply goes back through their history and it basically condemns them for their repeating their sordid past history leading up to Jesus, who they condemned and crucified. And today, a person who rejects what we preach and teach about Christ and salvation must be challenged. Is this Bible true? Answer, yes. God has given us a history book of things which actually happened, including promises he made and keeps. That's how he speaks to us today. This Bible is not like it might be, simply only 
a collection of statements and directions directly to the reader on how to live, only like Confucius says, it is primarily a history of things God did, things he said to his servants, put into their hearts, recorded here in this book, how God acts and works in his universe and how humans have and should respond to him. Is it odd that the very beginning of the New Testament, the very first thing is in Matthew? A genealogy, the history of Jesus' ancestors. Not at all. And as Luke begins his gospel, he says he is compiling a narrative of the things that have been accomplished using eyewitness accounts to present an orderly account for the certainty of the teaching about Jesus, a history. And so, this is how Stephen speaks the truth by recounting the Jews' history. Now here we need to note Stephen quotes a lot of the Old Testament in his long address, entirely unprepared, entirely from memory. Not only is he entirely familiar with the history of Israel, but how it is presented in the Torah as well. Remember Moses. He had been schooled as an Egyptian for 40 years before being called by God to leadership. The Apostle Paul was a highly educated Pharisee, and for Paul as a Christian, we know how that was turned to amazing good. So Stephen, like Jesus, was obviously highly knowledgeable, specifically in the Old Testament. The reason to mention these things is to encourage anyone who wants to be used to the uttermost by God for his glory. People who read the verse from Matthew about being called to testify, as it says before, governors and kings, just like Stephen unexpectedly here in our text, to defend the faith can feel anxious but confident they can do it. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Those are promises to you who have that level of faith to stand that way. But the point is, shouldn't we expect it will go a whole lot better in that moment if we are like Stephen? and these others who are steeped in the scriptures before we actually start speaking. So God, Moses, the law, the temple, those are the charges of blasphemy and those Stephen will speak to. And so for the first eight verses, the Sanhedrin listens comfortably to Stephen as he begins recounting Abraham. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So Stephen starts with Abraham and then notes eventually God brought him to what he tells the Sanhedrin is this land in which you are now living. It's all good. A long way through their history in a few sentences. God told Abraham his descendants 
would be slaves in a country not their own, but God would bring them to the promised land. Then he recounts Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 patriarchs. There's no recounting of rejecting God up to this point as Stephen speaks. Then what starts the Sanhedrin shifting in their seats, Stephen begins. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. Stephen begins to recount the repeating history of the Jews in rejecting God's saving ways toward them. Here with Joseph, there are many parallels to Jesus, yet Stephen doesn't have to bring out any strange nuance to make the point. He just recounts the history and it tells the tragic story. He just says simply here in our text, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Joseph, he has favor in his father's eyes, and his brothers are jealous. He makes claims about himself that he will rule and reign over them, and they reject him. They even want to kill him. Likewise, Jesus did very well with the crowds until he made claims about himself, which stirred their rejection. Things like this. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. And for many members of the Sanhedrin, listening to Stephen, that jealousy had been in full effect when it came to Jesus. Pilate had figured them out. The scripture records it for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So they sold Joseph for pieces of silver, and likewise, Jesus was betrayed for silver as well. So as Stephen goes on, the larger theme in here, God has his plans, then he acts, and there is trouble because of human sin. Rescue is needed, but there is rejection. Then sometimes repentance. In the end, God's plans end up succeeding in every case in spite of any rejection. Joseph, he's appointed ruler over all Egypt, and in desperation, his brothers come to him as they were going to, this is not too strong a word, to perish unless they were somehow rescued, and it was to be by the one, that is Joseph, they had previously fully rejected, almost killed, and then sold out to foreigners. But what they meant for evil, God's plan for his covenant of redemption and for the good of the people would prevail. His brothers, they were ashamed and afraid when they realized how they had done evil against Joseph, knowing they deserved punishment, but were hoping for his forgiveness. And Joseph receives them, forgives them, and greatly blesses them in their repentance. Do we see why Stephen here really just needs to go through Israel's history to lead up to his point that this Jesus, who he preaches, is the anointed one, the Messiah, and they are once again rejecting God who wants to save and bless them, calling them to repentance. Then Stephen continues by recounting Moses, and this is the longest part of his testimony to the Sanhedrin. Recall the main charges against him were blasphemy against God, Moses, 
the law, and the temple. So, Moses. Now, he gets a lot of attention, and the Jews often point to him as the one being blasphemed. Here at Stephen, and of course, also later, Paul is accused of similar blasphemy. Paul is known in Jerusalem like this. You teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. And so Stephen says here about Moses, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So again, there are allusions to Jesus. Moses was born at this time, God's perfect time in history, as in, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Then here in Egypt, Moses was to be killed but was hidden, and of course, Jesus was taken to Egypt to escape those who were to kill him. Moses was adopted, and of course, Jesus was essentially by Joseph. Stephen says Moses was full of wisdom and mighty in words and deeds, and so too, obviously, Jesus himself, we could go on and on. Even the Pharisees' own guards came back, humbled after hearing Jesus, and said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. So Stephen, in recounting Moses, will once again reveal how in the midst of it he is pointing to Christ. Then as Stephen continues, that rejection of rescue is the theme as he reminds them Moses saw a Jew being wronged, as it says here, and so he struck down the Egyptian. So Stephen very clearly states the purpose. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So there we have Stephen getting a bit more direct to the Sanhedrin. Jesus is the ultimate highlight. Then, when two Jews are fighting and he intervened, they say, get out of here, and they thrust him aside. They said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And at that, Moses fled. Now the Sanhedrin, they loved Moses, and Stephen is highlighting his rejection. That's one way of summarizing the theme of Stephen's entire speech, rejection. Rejection of God's grace, but yet God's continued extension of that grace. As it says here, Moses thought his brothers would understand God was giving them salvation, but they did not understand. Is that happening right then for the Sanhedrin when it comes to Jesus? Of course it is. What does John say about Jesus? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Like Jesus also says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here in Moses' account, the fighting is Jew against Jew, but of course it is also slave against slave, slaves in Egypt. So they were more content with their slavery than Moses' rescue, so they reject him. And later, after the Jews leave Egypt and experience the difficulties in the desert, 
as Stephen recounts here in his speech, in their hearts, they turn to Egypt. Of course, the Sanhedrin themselves had settled in with their oppression by the Romans, not willingly oppressed, but they were used to it, and they were afraid of any change, like Jesus Christ, which might challenge their way of life. So here in our text, the rejected Moses flees to Midian for 40 years. Then God directly intervenes again, as he did with Abraham. Here it's in the burning bush, and Moses returns to his fellow Jews. So Stephen, again emphasizing the theme of rejection, describes the returning Moses like this, the Moses whom they rejected. And he calls him the Jews' redeemer who did wonders and signs before the Jews for 40 years in rescuing and leading them out of Egypt and through the desert. So as Stephen goes back over their history, we see Moses is another shadow of Christ. God anointed both of them to speak words from the Father. They are teachers of the law. They are intermediators between God and man. As Moses had said to God when the Jews worshipped the golden calf in the desert, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And they know Moses. They know him well, these Sanhedrin. So they know exactly what Moses said as Stephen goes on and recounts it. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Of course, Moses was speaking of Jesus, whom they are rejecting. The one who is very clearly identified in Isaiah, for example. These said, Hedron, right there in front of Stephen, some had heard Jesus speak. They knew of his many miracles, even knew he had raised the man Lazarus dead four days from the grave. But of course, we know they are hard-hearted unbelievers, and it seems no amount of further information is going to cause them to truly believe in the Messiah. Yet Stephen, he will keep attempting to convict them of their unbelief. Now, this is where the Sanhedrin surely begin to shift more in their seats as Stephen is building toward his final points. He has been saying the Jews rejected rescuers and redeemers who were a foreshadowing of Christ, like Joseph, Joseph and Moses, but now it's going to be God himself they will reject by rejecting the law he gave them. Stephen goes on to remind them God directly intervenes again. Speaking of Moses, he received living oracles to give to us. That is the law from Mount Sinai, which they mostly failed to keep. Stephen's history of the Jews, that's what he does to convict them. They are once again rejecting their God, that is Jesus, by recounting their past performance with God. As the modern saying goes, past performance is not a guarantee of future results, but in the case of the Jews, the past is being repeated again, with the same future results. 
rejecting God's mercy to them. So when people first read this speech by Stephen, the reaction might be, well, yes, that's just a recounting of the Old Testament. But of course, it ultimately all points to Christ as Stephen is doing. Jesus himself, he said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And after his resurrection, he meets with the disciples and says the same thing to them. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So Moses received those living oracles from God, but then Stephen recounts the Jews' reaction to them. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So more rejection of God and his truth, the law, and back towards bondage. And so Stephen goes on in just a few words to get from their first rejection of the law and Moses all the way to their exile. Then he ends with, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And why? Stephen says, God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. Sound familiar? Paul says the same thing about us, about all humans who should know God, but did not honor him or thank him, but became fools. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to all kinds of sinful things. Now, even though Stephen has brought them great discomfort simply recounting Israel's history of rejecting God, these Sanhedrin could still find a way to sit comfortably in their seats since they are secure in having the temple itself. This was the final thing they had falsely accused Stephen of, of blaspheming the temple when they brought him in for questioning. But Stephen, he loves the temple, what it represents, and even all the more now that he knows Jesus and how it went along with all the Old Testament, pointing to the one, the Messiah, the one Stephen loves as his greatest treasure. But he does not rely upon it as a foundation for his faith. But for the Sanhedrin, the temple was the base camp, if you will, from which to spread the law for both good and bad. Good, because this law is what sets the Jews apart as God's people and tells the world how God wants us to live rightly before him. And of course, ultimately shows us we can't keep the law. We fail, we sin, we are guilty and under God's judgment. And that is why it is really, really good, because in that failure, it leads us to Christ, hopefully, for forgiveness of those sins when we realize and accept the reason he died upon the cross was to pay for our sins a payment we could never make. 
and it should be apparent how massively infinite the payment would be since it required the sinless Son of God to die on that cross as the only way for God's justice to be served. So the law is good, but it is also bad for these Sanhedrin. Because as Paul says about the law following Jews, or being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Jesus, he'd been a bit more harsh about them, saying, woe to them, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Since the cross, they do it by teaching false doctrines about Jesus and continue requiring the people to observe their traditions in order to be right with God. By trying to convince the people he was a phony to prevent other Jews from becoming his followers. These Sanhedrin they took comfort in their building that day as they listened to Stephen ensconced there on the temple grounds. But God had never asked for a temple to dwell in. David decided God needed one, and God accepted it, but he did not ask for it. He required only a tent in the wilderness. Even Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, knew it was but a symbol Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And Stephen says here to the Sanhedrin, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Of course, today, it can be very similar. Salvation, being forgiven by God, for many is thought to be attained by going to the temple, the church, the parish, and being a good law-keeping person. People can feel so much better after church, an uplifting message, or at least one which doesn't condemn them. If by chance it does, many will say, I'll try to do better, and everything will work out fine. But as Stephen comes toward the end of his speech, he quotes the Old Testament, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so Stephen confirms one cannot rely upon law-keeping and the temple to be right with God. God was with Abraham across all the lands he traveled. God was on the mountain. And in the wilderness, God was with all the patriarchs absent the temple. And so then, the foundation which the Sanhedrin were relying upon is crumbled by Stephen. The temple which always points to God and their law, God speaking to them, all of it was to ultimately point to Christ, to God's redemption, God's being present with his people his offer of forgiveness, but only in Christ, the Messiah, whom they had only just recently known in their midst, rejected and murdered. But these Sanhedrin, 
They rely upon their own law-keeping good works, their own self-effort and self-justification for their imagined peace with God. But of course, it is only by faith alone in Christ alone, his death for our sins upon that cross. For these hard-hearted, unbelieving Sanhedrin, the Savior Stephen is testifying about, his teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection were all very recent and known. Now, the very important words he said next to these Sanhedrin, they were very offensive to them, proven by the fact their anger boiled over and they stoned him to death. Hopefully you won't do that to me as I read them to you. At this point, we could call these Sanhedrin in our modern lingo, those unbelievers. Today, a preacher will often be able to present the text and in so doing call unbelievers to repentance, to faith in Christ, to turn to Christ for forgiveness of sins and be filled with the Holy Spirit as he gives you a new heart and mind to invade you and give you an eternal love for the Savior and it's often best to do it with firmness, but perhaps with a good dose of gentleness too. But as Stephen ends here, he chooses the extreme firmness and lacking gentleness approach. I remember some words from one of my favorite old time preachers. He recalls a church member who told him a friend of hers stopped coming to his church. This woman said her friend stopped coming because she found a different, nicer church, one where the sermons made her feel good about her life and good about herself. But the friend said at this preacher's church, his sermons made her feel bad. To which the preacher replied, that is the finest compliment I have ever received in this church. So this scripture presents an opportunity today to simply say to unbelievers what Stephen began to say at the end to those unbelievers that day, probably about the same way he said it, even though it may seem a bit too firm and not so gentle. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Those are some of the final words of Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit to those unbelievers when he has finished recounting all the reasons they should have accepted, not rejected the Messiah, what the Old Testament prophesied. And don't we too have all the Sanhedrin had right here in front of this, us in this Bible? And we even have a vast treasure beyond that as well. All the testament of what Jesus said and did to confirm he is indeed the Holy One of God, His very Son, who lived sinlessly, was the perfect sacrifice, bled and died on that cross for you so that by faith you might believe and be saved from the coming wrath upon you. So for us, we should be a bit less stiff-necked people than the Sanhedrin. We should very much not be circumcised in heart and ears meaning beyond just trying a bit of 
law-keeping for acceptance by God, but admitting we deserve eternal hell and have nothing to offer but only to receive forgiveness from Christ by faith alone. These Jews here in the Sanhedrin, familiar with all the Old Testament, they knew these words. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. They knew because when Moses had received the second set of Ten Commandments, and God was commanding the Jews to obey them, he said, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. And then God recounts Israel's history to the Jews a few chapters later in Deuteronomy. He actually recounts their coming history in advance, just the way it would happen. They would abandon God's law and be exiled, but then be mercifully returned to the promised land for his blessing. And then these wonderful words in there, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And that promise was to come true in all its fullness in Christ, the very Savior the Sanhedrin were rejecting. These Sanhedrin were not the kind of Jews Paul talks about, the kind he wants all of us to be, because Paul tells us this. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So they were doing exactly what Stephen said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Of course, we too can resist the Holy Spirit. Just what they were doing, we can ultimately be doing as we hear these words and yet do as the Sanhedrin did and the world has been doing for 2,000 years, reject Christ. Reject him and do so at extreme eternal peril. Stephen's speech says the same to us today as it did to the Sanhedrin. It is not by works, so that no one can boast, but by faith alone in Christ alone. Commentator Derek Thomas, in writing about our passage today, reminds us of a hymn we just happen to sing sometimes here in this church, Rock of Ages. He's pointing to this line, Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to the cross I cling. But notes, many people change it to something like this. Something in my hands I bring, also to the cross I cling. These Sanhedrin had their hands full of their law-keeping and fully rejected Jesus and his cross in which he bled and died for sins. The Jews' hands and our hands always getting us into trouble, either trying to make false gods to worship, idols like Moses told the Jews, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell, or come to the true God 
our good deeds for God's acceptance. That's us humans, always trying to find a God to serve our own way, whether we realize it or not. Stephen said not only those offending words, in modern lingo, we would understate the Sanhedrin's reaction to stone him by saying they were triggered, but then Stephen reminds them of all the prophets who were persecuted and killed, and finally even Jesus himself, and that, and that even then he looked up and saw Jesus at the right hand of God. So all of that is more than they can bear. So then it says, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And so that's the end of Stephen. Likely the church's first martyr. Did he accomplish anything? With the Sanhedrin, doesn't seem like he did. He simply recounts the Jews' history, God's great patience, mercy, long-suffering in the midst of their repeated rebellions, stiff necks, hard hearts towards him. He still brought them to the promised land, even after the God-rejecting, unbelieving debacle in the desert, etc., etc., etc. But of course, there is an end to God's patience with the stiff-necked and hard-hearted as Stephen had recounted about the golden calf, God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. Now all of this has been like recounting a courtroom trial, a tribunal, very contentious. Stephen's speech and his eventual stoning are very horrible and violent at the end, and all of this can be very unpleasant. But we might expect that when we're speaking of sin and judgment, of death and justice, especially when Stephen calls out to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, turn to Jesus, believe on him. And that's what we've been doing here this morning. Stephen recounting God's continual reaching out to rescue and the resulting rebellion and rejection of God. So the point is to say to us, are we doing this too? Are some of us ensconced in our cafeteria, our temple, and doing okay, but not? So let me just say Stephen's words were harsh and obviously his stoning was far worse, but look at the end of Stephen's life. A few verses later, as he is nearly dead from stoning, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so then, finally, the mental and physical anguish were over with. Stephen departs to be with Jesus right then, and he is at peace. He's now not only Stephen's redeemer and savior, but he is his comforter. Was Stephen here motivated to speak without fear under penalty of death, knowing worst case he would be with Jesus? Or was the gospel so burning in his heart 
that he could not help but speak of Jesus. Seems like he had at least a good amount of that hope of ultimately being with Jesus as he spoke out of boldness, since his last words as he died were, Here I am, Jesus. Take me. Receive my spirit. I'm going to Jesus in heaven. Jesus, who will condemn the unbelieving Sanhedrin members to eternal hell at judgment, but receives his forgiven child, Stephen, into eternal life. The same man, Jesus, who is deeply moved in spirit over those he loves when he sees their suffering, particularly of their death. This is Jesus who wept at the tomb of his dead friend, Lazarus, whom he loves. I think these words of a hymn about Jesus, who knows perfectly about human suffering, might be appropriate to read thinking about Stephen, who risked all for the sake of proclaiming Christ as being stoned to death and looking up and calling out to Jesus in heaven, whom he would soon be with. Though now ascended up on high, he bends on earth a brother's eye, partaker of the human name. He knows the frailty of our frame. Our fellow sufferer yet retains a fellow feeling of our pains. He still remembers in the skies his tears, his agonies, and cries. In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. He sent relief to Stephen. He sent relief to me. I was once very stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, just like the Sanhedrin, till Jesus unblinded me to the gospel. Sometimes I feel my neck is still stiff, and I don't listen like I should to Jesus through his word right here. But if you really know him, your ears will be unplugged, and you'll stop needing a spiritual chiropractor for your neck. He rides on a white horse. He slays the wicked with a sword. He has a fiery hell for unbelievers, but by faith he calls us to peace by his side. We must be, as Jesus says, like little children to receive him and his forgiveness, to enter into his rest like Stephen, letting him reach out to us with his nail-scarred hands, take us in his arms and bless us. We must see ourselves as sinners, weak, lost, and dying without Christ, our only hope. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Raise your head, for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. Father, we thank you that, Lord, you have infinite goodness towards us, 
who you have called out of darkness into your wonderful light. We thank you for these words of Stephen and along with all the other words that warn us and yet show your amazing mercy in calling out to us weak, wounded sinners to look up and see the love of God passing by today and every day, calling out, come to Jesus, to the cross, to the man who bled and died for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for glorifying yourself through your words, through your servant, Stephen, and through all who proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.